everyone, this is Nick and welcome to this new episode of your Linux and open source news podcast. And as always, well, I, I say always, it's just the second episode, but still, it's a longer version of your usual Linux and open source news videos that I make on YouTube, but just with more topics, more details, and without my ugly mug in it. They also tend to be more rambling. So this week, our main topics are Apple being fined for violating users' privacy in the EU by not obtaining consent from them before harvesting their data. We have Mastodon losing active users after its insane growth period, with some users just not sticking around after making the transition from Twitter, and we have Mozilla joining the Fediverse with their own Mastodon instance. But we also have news about GNOME, KDE, and Unity for desktop environments. We have updates to Pop! OS improving performance for everyone. And we have a lot more stuff, including an open source NVIDIA GPU driver making good progress. Now, just quickly before we begin, this podcast is brought to you free of ads, free of sponsors, and the plan is for it to remain this way. So if you like it, don't hesitate to check out the Patreon page in the show notes or to visit the PayPal link to donate whatever you want. All the links to the articles that I used to make that podcast are in the show notes as well. And you can find all my socials on the podcast website, which is podcast.thelinuxexp.com, where you can also comment on the episodes to discuss a specific topic or to leave some feedback. Okay, so we're going to be starting with Apple. And Apple, if you know, is really hitting the privacy stuff really hard, like they're saying... So what happens on your phone stays on what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. They pride themselves on not transferring data here and there. They run their AI models locally, whatever, blah, blah. That's their big campaign promise when you buy an iPhone. It's supposedly more private. Now, as we all probably know, there's been plenty of studies that show that basically iPhones emit the exact same amount of data per day uh, than an Android phone, except they send it mostly to Apple instead of sending it to Google. And Apple has a way smaller ad network than Google, so they probably use less of it to target you. But they still use some of it to target you. And if you're in the governments can access my data camp, then you know that basically every single shred of data that goes into their servers is accessed by the various governments where it is stored. Uh, but now there's definite proof that Apple is actually lying on their privacy claims. Because the French CNIL, which is the Data Commission for France, basically, it stands for Commission Nationale de l'Informatique et des Libertés, which roughly translates in National Commission for Computer Science and Freedoms, they just find Apple for 8 million euros. So that's that's a very small amount of money, obviously. It's not much, but it's still a condemnation of the company's bad privacy practice. And the condemnation is for uh, the fact that Apple was found to illegally harvest user data so they could target them with ads in the App Store without gathering a user's consent. They, they just didn't ask people if they consented to being targeted with ads uh, on the App Store. So they basically deposited and wrote identifiers that were used for advertising purposes on the phones, and they never asked users if they wanted to. Which is not exactly the case, because uh, when you have an iPhone or an iOS device in the settings, you can tell iOS to not uh, track you to not uh, track you with targeted ads. And Apple will even, on third-party apps, every time the application 
asks to have access to your unique ID uh, that lets you that lets the application, the developer of the app, identify you and track you and serve you targeted ads. Every time a third-party application tries to access this, Apple will show a pop-up saying, this application wants to track you, do you agree or not? Everybody's gonna say no. But they never show that for their own apps, and the setting that you can turn on doesn't apply to their own applications, which is exactly why they're being condemned right now. They're basically just lying. <laughs> you turn on a setting, but they don't follow it for their own application because it's not third-party data, it's first-party data. It's data from a direct consumer of Apple. Now, of course, they're going to appeal that decision, obviously, uh, because they say they prioritize user privacy. They say that they do more in terms of user privacy than anybody else to provide users with a clear choice for personalized ads. And of course, like I said, that choice is just, yes, it exists, but it's not applied to Apple's own apps, which like it's, it's not great. And it compounds with the fact that Apple was already fined uh, another 1 million euros in December for imposing abusive commercial clauses on French app developers. That, that, that was a fine that was doled out in France as well, uh, because, well, basically the, the clauses that Apple enforces on their app store when people sign up to, to publish their app on the app store, they're just illegal, basically. They're abusive. Uh, they, they sway the relationship in favor of Apple way too much and make developers way too dependent. So if you add that to the fact that they're going to have to enable third-party app stores in the EU, uh, they're, they're really not starting to look like a, a very good option right now. Or at least their marketing claims are being debunked. And yeah, of course, like they can say that they track people less than everybody else, but like if the bar is zero, because everybody else, like, like on a phone, everybody else tracks users, you have Android, which is basically the biggest spyware you can have, or you have iPhones. And yes, iPhones do probably track a little bit less data than what Google can, because Google has more services that, that are basically enforced when you use Android. But yeah, just, just because you do it less doesn't mean much, right? It's, it's still crappy. And it's a bad moment for me because I literally just switched uh, to an iPhone uh, like a few months ago, and I just made a video about it, which angered a lot of people for some reason, because apparently you are not allowed to like stuff that people don't. But uh, hey, <laughs> here we are. Now, still, we have another privacy breach, but this time from Google, which has been settled for $23 million. Uh, this was initiated by a very old lawsuit opened in California in 2010. Uh, that Google already had tried to settle for $8.5 million in 2013, uh, but that settlement fell through because while they were trying to settle it, there were other uh, convictions that were, that were basically against Google. Google was convicted of doing other things that basically made the thing they were accused of in this 2010 lawsuit a lot more likely to have actually happened. And so they managed to drag this through the courts for almost 10 more years, but they finally settled it for, well, $23 million, which is virtually nothing for Google. But still, it, like a settlement isn't an admission of guilt, but it's pretty much an admission of guilt, basically. If, if a company agrees to pay that kind of money, it's not just to stop a lawsuit. It's because they know they did something wrong and they just they don't want to pay lawyers to keep dragging it along again and again. So this suit uh, still needs court approval, this settlement. The court still needs to say, yes, okay, we agree that Google can pay that amount of money to get the charges dropped. 
Uh, and they, th this suit is about the fact that Google shared, well, allegedly shared search terms that consumers had typed in the search engine with advertisers and third-party vendors without any permission and without any consent from the users. Uh, that happened on the web, that happened on search bar on Android, and also when the user clicked on any link, sponsored or not, on Google, the personal information of the user was also apparently disclosed to said third parties, which had paid Google to have access to that data, but Google was not allowed to give that data away. Now, that lawsuit also alleges that these third parties also paid Google to have more information about which search-related factors led the user to actually click on a specific link. So not only did they pay to have the personal information, but they also paid to know what you did before, uh, which let them infer how they can influence you, basically. You're paying to know, okay, this guy, he, he's this kind of age, he likes this kind of stuff, and he clicked on this link. And why did he click on this link? Because he visited this first and this first and this first. So you can now deduce his behavior, well, the behavior of the user, and you can now really easily influence uh, its decisions through dark patterns, for example. So basically all of this means that Google would have violated the Stored Communications Act, which is a US federal law, and so they basically decided to settle it. So yes, it's all alleged behavior. It has, they have not been condemned. They have not been found guilty. But if they agreed to settle that case after what, a twen no, yeah, 12 years, after 12, 12, almost 13 years, if they accepted to settle that after 13 years for 23 million, it's probably because they knew they were guilty and like it, it was an easy escape door, basically. Now let's talk a little bit about the Fediverse. And uh, well, you probably already know about Mastodon. You know that Mastodon has seen insane growth recently. Uh, they passed 6.5 million accounts, user accounts, and they, they were at some point at about 2.5 million monthly active users in early December. Um, most of this growth came after Elon Musk bought Twitter. Whether you think they fled Twitter for a good reason or not, I don't care. That's not my point in here. But basically, that's the main cause. Like, you can clearly see on graphs a direct correlation between every single announcement of Elon Musk about what he wants to do with the platform and an immediate direct increase in the number of Mastodon users. Whether they're here for good reason or not, I'll let you decide that. I personally think that yes, but that's uh, just my opinion. And it seems like these users are not necessarily sticking around on Mastodon. Uh, the number of active Mastodon users declined by about 30% between December and January. Uh, it moved from 2.5 million in early December to 1.8 or 1.9 million active users, uh, monthly active users in early January which seems like a lot, like it's basically 600,000 people, which is more than the number of active users Mastodon even had before the Twitter acquisition. So it's a lot of people that just decided that Mastodon wasn't for them. Now, of course, there are multiple possible explanations. The first one is you're measuring active usage during the month of December, which, as we all know, is holiday season for a lot of people. They're with their families, and of course, the engagement is going to be a lot lower, so this might have an impact on the number of people. But that cannot account for all of that. And I don't have the exact definition of what they count as a monthly active user. If you need to at least use Mastodon once to interact with one post, or even just get logged in, 
once in the month or if it's more than that if it's once a month then no the holidays cannot excuse that i can't believe that someone during the whole month of december that actually likes mastodon would never log back in for a whole month but you never know i don't have the exact definition so it, it could be more contentious than that but it's still a lot of uh, of a decrease but honestly it's not that surprising in my opinion because well obviously you're leaving a specific platform not because you hate the platform, but because you don't like what it's becoming or because everybody's talking about the new thing and you want to try the new thing or because your friends are pressuring you to moving there or because you just want to experiment with something new. And of course, all of this generates a lot of new signups, a lot of new logins, but that doesn't mean that every single person will find what they want on Mastodon. Some people might just have thought that they couldn't find the people they actually wanted to follow and they moved back. Some people might have been really angry at, at what Twitter was announcing and then realized that, you know what, it still kind of works for me and went back there. Uh, so there's been a few arguments. Uh, there have been a few arguments online saying that it's because Mastodon is too difficult and that people left. But the difficulty is only into finding a server, an instance and signing up. Afterwards, it's not difficult. So I don't think that's it because then the numbers would not have gone up. People would just not have been able to sign up. But what we're seeing is people who actually signed up and used to log in don't log in anymore. So it's probably not because of the instance thing, uh, unless like they could never actually get to grips with Mastodon itself. But that would be weird because it's basically an exact replica of Twitter in terms of user interface. So I think it's normal. I don't think it's anything to worry about for now. If the numbers continue to decrease again and again and again, month after month, then yes, it's going to be an issue. But... For now, there's the December factor, there's the normal fact that people trying out new things for two or three months will, some of them will drop out. It's normal. It's absolutely normal and it's not concerning in the slightest. We'll have to wait and see how long uh, this decline lasts. If February and March also keep declining at the same rate, then yes, there's a very big problem. Uh, that means that basically the platform is somehow unusable for most people who just signed up. But if it's just a, a momentarily uh, decrease and it shuts back up, which is very probable, seeing that Twitter just announced that they are, were going to test out a feed that is basically just an algorithm, so some kind of TikTok-like feed, which surfaces things that it thinks you might like instead of surfacing the tweets from people you actually follow, this might drive more people to Mastodon again and they might drop out again afterwards. We're going to have to see. I'm personally not really that concerned, but hey, you do you. Now, still on the Fediverse, uh, this is something that I missed at the end of 2022. I don't know how, because it's supposed to be in the articles and blogs that I follow. But it looks like Mozilla is entering the Fediverse too. Uh, they'll be testing a publicly accessible instance, which is going to be Mozilla.social, which is going to be a Mastodon instance. And they'll be testing it in early 2023, so it cannot be far uh, from now, I guess in a few months tops. And yeah, so it's it's only a Mastodon instance for, for now. They say they're going to start their Fediverse exploration with Mastodon. And so I guess you can infer that maybe if it goes well, they'll open instances for other things, maybe PeerTube, PixelFed, Castopod, whatever else. This initiative seems to be part of their pledge for a healthier internet, uh, a healthy internet, as they call it, uh, which is basically their way of saying we'd like the internet to remain open and nice and people to not act like bastards towards each other. And so they decided that 
moving away from the traditional social media or at least bringing their support to, to less traditional social media like Mastodon, to, to the Fediverse basically, uh, they feel that bringing them, their support to that is, is a way of helping. And I honestly agree uh, they are joining uh, Vivaldi uh, into supporting the Fediverse as well because Vivaldi also opened uh, their own Mastodon instance. And honestly, I'm, I'm all for it. If you don't like these companies or nonprofits and you don't want to support them, then you can not use their instances or block people that come from these instances if they annoy you. But the fact remains that these big names are big endorsements uh, for such a new, well, newly talked about a social network such as Mastodon or a, a relatively new concept like the Fediverse and decentralized social media. They're a big endorsement. And when people see big names like Mozilla or Vivaldi, maybe they think that it's more trustworthy. Maybe they feel more at ease picking these servers over servers that might be managed by people they don't know about. It reinforces trust, basically. So I think it's a good thing. Uh, I don't think these companies, specifically Vivaldi or, or Mozilla, will turn the Fediverse into a corporate nightmare, uh, like some people seem to think. They're basically insignificant <laughs> in terms of their impact and contribution. Uh, they're, they're not offensive companies by any means, uh, and they're not big enough to sway the whole number of users. They just bring some big name backing uh, to a service that is, I think, a good thing. So we'll have to see if other companies follow suit, though. Uh, I think it was, um, how is it called? Flickr. I think it was Flickr that also wanted to join the Fediverse, which is kind of cool. And uh, we'll see how it goes and, and if people do it or not. But I think it's good to have that kind of backing. And it will bring more attention to Mastodon, but it will probably also bring more attention to various Fediverse services like PixelFed, like Castopod, like PeerTube. And that can only be a good thing. Okay, now a really small thing. Uh, we talked about AMD desktops last week, uh, full AMD computers, uh, and now we have a full AMD laptop being announced uh, by System76. It's their refresh of the Pangolin, which is sort of their workstation laptop. Uh, it seems to have a new chassis, which is magnesium alloy. It's 15.6 inches, and it is uh, using an AMD CPU and a dedicated AMD GPU as well. Uh, so from what we've seen is just a press release and an announcement right now. They have a teaser page with a few specs, but we don't know all the configurations that are possible. We don't know the release date yet. But from what they've already talked about and announced, it seems like it's going to have a full HD 144Hz display. It's going to use a Ryzen 7 6800U, which is a pretty good CPU. And it's going to be coupled with a Radeon 680M GPU, which is not a, a power workhorse, basically. It's about on par with a GDX 1050Ti, which means it's probably going to be more than enough for some professional workflows, like small 3D modeling, video editing, uh, 3D, 3D whatever work, modeling, uh, I already said that, uh, CAD work, or basically these kind of activities, like digital painting or, or stuff like using GIMP. It's going to accelerate those tasks really well, but for gaming, that's just not going to be enough, at least for modern gaming. And yeah, you're not going to use that as a full-powered workstation desktop replacement. Still, they managed to bring 10 hours of battery life, uh, they say at least, uh, 10 hours of battery life, instead of the 6 hours of the previous Pangolin model, which is 
in my opinion, really nice for something with a dedicated GPU. It is kind of chunky at 1.8 kilograms. It has a 70 watt hour battery and you got the usual two slots for M.2 SSDs. It apparently supports up to 16 terabytes of RAM. You get DDR5 RAM. You get a good enough port selection with regular USB, USB-C, HDMI, Ethernet, uh, headphone jacks, of course. You get the usual Potato 720p webcam, which is, I know it, it's going to be underwhelming. And that's about all we know for the time being. We don't have a release date. We don't have the various configurations. We don't know if you have the option to have a better display than just full HD. I know some people on 15 inches really would prefer 1440p or even 4K. We'll have to see. Uh, Technically, this laptop, I should get a review unit. I rarely, no, I never got a System76 device because I live in Europe and they're in the US and they don't generally ship uh, where I live. They ship their laptops, but it's kind of expensive. Apparently this time I'm getting a review unit. I've been talking with System76 a little bit more these days, ever since I reviewed their keyboards. And it seems that they're willing to send me some stuff, which is cool. So technically, once the Pangolin is out, I should be able to have a a video review of it, which is nice. It's going to be my first System76 laptop that I can review. So you can look at the YouTube channel for that. Because yes, this podcast is something, but... My main activity is the YouTube channel called The Linux Experiment. Some of you might know it, some of you apparently don't because someone on Patreon just subscribed exclusively for the podcast, apparently. So yeah, if you want to see video reviews, of course, there's a YouTube channel called The Linux Experiment. Now let's move on to some desktop environments. We're going to start with GNOME. And if you thought that they never listened to their users or they did whatever they wanted, well, they have this new initiative that might be of interest. Uh, They're basically thinking about making a change on the current GNOME desktop. But instead of just deciding on their own or or with their own design team, they decided to let users test that change and give some feedback by releasing an extension that you can install on GNOME 43 and, uh, and use it and just give your feedback on how you like it or how you don't like it. So the change that they're planning is the little application name menu. Uh, They want to remove it basically. And yes, I know, it's yet another thing that GNOME is removing. Uh, if, you, if you use GNOME, you know that there's the Activities button in the top left corner of the top panel, and next to it is the name of the application that you're currently running. And clicking on that generally doesn't have many options. Uh, you can show the details of the app in the, in the App Store, in, in GNOME software. You can shut down the application, and you sometimes get the same options as in the jump list that the application might have. So, for example, uh, the, the, the options that you could get by right-clicking on the application's icon in a dock. So, for example, a new window for Firefox or a new window for a file manager, stuff like that. So, they're planning to maybe remove, well, they're testing the waters on removing this menu. Their rational is, this menu used to be more useful. It used to contain everything that is in the hamburger menu of the application. Uh, well, what used to be the hamburger menu of GNOME apps. This menu has been deprecated since, I don't know, six or ten versions uh, and is not used in, in GNOME applications anymore. They do have a hamburger menu, but they don't have the application menu that they used to have. So this menu in the top panel doesn't really have much of interest that you cannot already replicate either through the hamburger menu of the application, a keyboard shortcut, or the bottom dock that you can get in the activities view. The second thing uh, that this app men- app name menu, let's call it, this app name menu uh, was doing, 
is as a focus indicator. Basically, by looking at it, you knew which window was focused. Uh, so for example, if I have right now, like right now, I've got my Firefox window with my Nextcloud note for my podcast notes. I have my Audacity window. I'm using dark mode, which means that both windows are pretty dark. At a glance, I don't exactly know which one is focused. If I look up, I know that Audacity is. Uh, now, you could also argue that this is a problem with the theme uh, that GNOME is using, that applications in focus are not distinct enough. And I would agree, whether it's in light mode or dark mode, I think the application that is in focus isn't super well uh, focused, basically, using the theme. Uh, the the, the non-focused windows aren't dark enough, in my opinion. But that's another topic. So basically, they're saying this menu was supposed to do that, but since it's tucked into the top left corner, it's not immediately visible. And they, they think they can do better to show which application is focused, especially when you change uh, Windows. And so what they're proposing is that you install the uh, the extension. Uh, I think it's called, uh, I have the name right there. Uh, it's called Focus Indicator. And this new extension will basically remove that app name menu and give you an animation when you switch windows. So if you press Alt-Tab, for example, the window that is newly focused will have some kind of little rebound effect. It's going to grow bigger than smaller once or twice, just to show you that, yeah, it's, it's vibrating a little bit. This is the one that you're currently using. Uh, I haven't tested it yet, so I don't know if that animation is also reflected when you click on a window, uh, and not just when you use keyboard shortcuts, but I would expect it to be. Uh, so it's clearer to know which, uh, which window is currently focused. And so basically, you can try it out and test it and give your feedback. The extension lets you adjust a few things. It lets you tweak the animation parameters uh, of what the window does when it's focused. But that doesn't mean that these settings will make it into the final implementation. What it just means is that you have a way to test this change before it's applied in GNOME 44 and say that you absolutely hate it if you do or that you absolutely like it if you do or say that you don't care. In that case, you probably just have to not send any feedback. Personally, I would rather have that app name menu be actually useful, like maybe containing everything that is in the, in the hamburger menu. Uh, or maybe being the content of the menu bar of older applications. For example, Audacity is a GTK2 app, I think, and it still uses an old menu bar. I would rather have that menu bar get out of the window and be tucked into the app name menu instead of having no app name menu and that menu bar in the middle of my window. Or the contents of the hamburger menu could be duplicated in that app name menu. But since they seem to think that this menu doesn't serve any purpose, they might as well remove it, I guess, and give us a good animation. Right now, I never clicked on it to interact with a window ever since I started using GNOME on Fedora. And I don't really see why you would do that. Now, still on GNOME topics, uh, there are a few nice updates to their applications this week. So there's that extension that I talked about. There's also a new version of 10 gram which is uh, written T-A-N-G-R-M, G-R-A-M, sorry. Uh, it's a web-based, uh, a web app-based browser uh, that lets you access a bunch of pinned web apps. So basically, instead of having all your web apps in your main web browser window in normal tabs, it gives you a sidebar with a list of pinned web apps that are all accessed in the same window. It's basically a secondary web browser designed to run web apps. And it looks kind of cool, especially if you interact with a lot of people with various communication tools. Uh, it's going to let you have all of them at the same time in the same place. 
it's pretty cool. And so this new release uh, uses a newer WebKit engine because as with all like GNOME applications, they tend to use uh, WebKit in their browser uh, components. And it also updates the GNOME runtime. And there's also a beta for Tangram 2.0, which will be moving to Libadvita and GTK4. Now there is also a new application called Carburetor, uh, written C-A-R-B-U-R-E-T-O-R, R, which is designed to connect to the Tor network. So I guess it's pronounced Carburetor. Uh, it's mainly meant for Linux phones, but I don't see any reason why it shouldn't work on desktops as well. There's also a new version of Graphs, which is a math data and plotting, a statistics data and plotting application. It has a new update uh, and it basically lets you get the integral or the derivative of your data and it lets you perform Fournier transforms. Now, my math classes are so far away now that I cannot even remember how you would do that manually. I used to be able to do it because I just... Uh, I had my main exam with a math specialty, so I was able to do pretty crazy stuff at the time, but I forgot all about it. So I guess if you're like me, that's a very useful tool to have. They also have a new version of Money, a new beta of Money, which is the personal finance manager, uh, which lets you create repeat transactions. So you can say, I've got this recurring cost every two weeks uh, or every month, and so you don't have to re-enter it manually or every month or duplicate transactions, which is better. And it also has some design tweaks. And more importantly, GNOME developers have fixed an issue in the desktop portals, uh, which will let applications use the document portal to let users choose where to save documents. There was a bug previously in there that opened the files in read-only, uh, when you were using the uh, the desktop portal or the document portal uh, in a file picker. So this meant that you could open files, but you couldn't save them using that file picker, which obviously sucks because it's more secure to use that portal than not. So now it's fixed and so it should be all better. And so applications should also be moving to the document portal for save operations. And now we're going to talk about Unity as a desktop environment. And... You probably already know, or at least I talked about it uh, maybe in the last podcast or, or two Linux news videos previously, uh, I talked about Unity 7.7, .7, which is going to be like the next major update. It brings a few redesigns, uh, a few improvements. Well, apparently they're also working on something else, which is a variant of Unity 7.7, .7, but it's going to be called Unity X. So you're going to have Unity 7.7, .7, which is the mainline release, and you're going to have Unity X 7.7, which brings a bunch of changes. It's basically the exact same desktop as the current Unity, but it's going to let you customize it and, and, and use it with more modularity. So you can replace the window manager with anything you want, including something that supports Wayland, for example. You could replace or remove the top panel that contains the indicators, the global menu, and stuff like that. And uh, you could also tweak a lot more things uh, in the settings than what Unity currently lets you do. So basically, Unity X is the exact same thing as Unity, but letting you mix and match components, which begs the question, why would you keep working on the standard non-customizable Unity 7.7 .7 when you have work on a much more modular Unity X 7.7, .7, which is already possible to test. Uh, if you go on GitLab, on the GitLab project of Unity, you can already download it and try it out. I don't really understand why you would keep working on the older project if the new one has feature parity, but is also 
more advanced and has more modularity and features, but I guess they must have a reason behind that. Uh, so basically in terms of features, you still have the same dash as you used to, which is the thing that lets you search for files, applications, and, uh, and videos and stuff like that on your hard drive. And it still works as you would expect, but now you can adjust the opacity of it, something that you could not do in regular Unity 7. You still have the HUD, which is that, that heads-up display interface that lets you search through menu bar items. Uh, you just type the command you want, and if the HUD finds something in the menu bar of the application, it surfaces it, and if you press enter, it actually launches that command, which is pretty cool. And so this thing is being completely redesigned. It's not part of the dash anymore. It's a, it's a floating window. It apparently supports way more applications than the regular Unity HUD, which had issues with applications that were basically non-GTK and or which did not expose their menu bar to the top panel. And it can also be opened on multiple apps at the same time, which is pretty cool. And you also get the same control center as Unity, but it has more options to change more settings. And there's also a new YAML file that you can edit uh, to replace the window manager, to change some settings, to replace the settings daemon, to replace the panel with something else and more. It looks like a very interesting thing. It looks like basically moving Unity into the modern era, uh, which is more modular, more customizable. It's probably also a very good thing for various distributions, which will now be able to probably better integrate Unity with some customizations. Uh, let's say, for example, Fedora wanted a Unity spin, ima let's imagine, but they didn't want to ship it because it meant not having Wayland as the default. Well, now they could ship a version of Unity X uh, that uses a, a window manager that is not Compiz and that is compatible with Wayland. For example, Mutter, the window, the window compositor, the window manager for GNOME. And maybe that would work well, and maybe they could have a Unity spin now. So it's a good thing, but I still don't really understand why the normal Unity keeps existing in that case. Okay, now time to talk about KDE. We have a few small updates on KDE as well, uh, with the system settings lending yet more UI improvements, uh, yet more user interface improvements. Uh, they now let you add custom commands to keyboard shortcuts with a way nicer interface than before. Uh, the launch feedback page in the settings, uh, which is that thing that lets you tweak the bouncing icons near the mouse cursor when you launched an application. Uh, your mouse cursor was moving around and you could see a small icon of what you just clicked bouncing next to that cursor. Well, this used to have its own settings page, now it's being merged in the cursor settings, which makes total sense. Uh, so you have one less settings page, but you still have the options, that's really good. The Highlight Change Settings button has been removed from the sidebar and moved to the hamburger menu, which is a change I'm not a fan about because it's far less visible and so people will probably not use it as much. And that's about it for the system settings. Basically, as with every KDE week or KDE release, we can expect 5.27 to have a much better system settings with more improvements, more legibility and stuff like that. Uh, other UI changes to KDE include improvements to the touch mode, which now lets you access all the features of the plasma panel editing mode, which wasn't the case before. You also have the kickoff main menu, which shows separators that you might have added. Uh, you can edit that main menu, the contents of that main menu by right-clicking it. It opens an application that is called K menu edit. And so you can reorder applications, add, add, uh, 
launch options to various applications, uh, change categories, and you can add separators, but these weren't displayed uh, on the menu when you opened it. Uh, so now it's going to be the case. And that kickoff menu will also switch to a more compact layout on very small screens, which I guess is okay if you have like a netbook uh, uh, of your and you want to keep using KDE on it. And there are also the usual bug fixes. 133 bugs were fixed this week, which is enormous. And they have a new documentation page, which will let people uh, better understand how to package KDE apps with Flatpak, which I heard is a big problem with Flatpak. Like some applications are really tricky to package and getting started isn't easy. So it's cool that they have more documentation about that because, well, Flatpak is great, uh, but it will be greater if every app uses it. Uh, it will greatly improve the development speed. So that's really cool. Now let's finish our roundup of desktop environments. This time it's just desktop environment adjacent. Uh, it's about PopOS. If you're using PopOS, they just delivered a brand new update to your system, uh, which enables ZRAM support. If you don't know what ZRAM support is, like I was uh, before reading the article uh, from OMG Ubuntu, it's a system that compresses the RAM that is currently not used. So for example, you have three apps open. One has been untouched for, let's say, 30 minutes. Uh, that's just an arbitrary number, but let's say 30 minutes. The RAM it occupies will be compressed uh, with, with the ZRAM uh, software, which means it's going to use less space in your physical memory. So you have more free space to do other things, which is a good thing. And when you resume that application, it's going to be uncompressed by your CPU. And so you're going to take back that amount of memory, but another application might be compressed in its place to keep some free RAM at all times. It's basically really great if you play video games, because it means that all the apps that are running in the background can get compressed uh, at the cost of a little bit of CPU when you resume them. And it also means that the system has less need of writing to the swap file or the swap partition, which is basically fake RAM, which is located on your hard drive or your SSD. And hard drives and SSDs are generally slower to read and write than physical RAM, which means that the more you use swap, uh, the less your computer acts quickly. So being able to keep as many things in RAM as possible, even if it's compressed, is beneficial compared to using the swap file or the swap partition. It's going to cost you a few CPU cycles to decompress that RAM and recompress it on the fly, but generally CPUs are good enough and have enough cores available, so that isn't really an issue. Apparently, it's going to help well, obviously, it's going to help all the system, like old potato computers that don't have that much RAM, which is good. But it's also going to have a nice impact on computers with more RAM if you tend to always saturate the RAM that you have, which is good. Now, some people have said that ZRAM can actually decrease performance in certain scenarios, especially in video games. And I'm guessing it's when the game is split between many different processes. Uh, some of them might be put to sleep too early, and so they have to be resumed and decompressed. And so your CPU is always compressing or decompressing something, and this might uh, reduce the performance. I would think that's one of the main problems that you could have. But System76 said that their implementation should not suffer from that problem, which, I mean, is pretty cool. And I also learned that apparently Fedora already has ZRAM included and enabled. 
and I've been using it without knowing it uh, for the past year or so. And so I can't say I found any issues on my end. My computer has always been very, well, all my computers running Fedora have always been very, very responsive. Okay, last little tidbit before moving on to the gaming news. Uh, it's about Chromium. If you use Chromium on Linux, uh, you might have been frustrated by the scrolling speed. Uh, for some reason on Linux, they only scrolled by 53 pixels, pixels increment. Uh, when on Windows, they scrolled by 120 pixels. And Firefox on Linux scrolls by 130 pixels each time you scroll. Uh, this meant that scrolling on Chromium could be extremely slow. You had to move your, your scroll wheel a lot more or you had to move your fingers on a touchpad a lot more to get to where you wanted to go in a web page. Especially considering that now a lot of articles have the first three paragraphs being completely useless recaps just written for SEO and, uh, and Google and not for the actual reader. Uh, this means that you often always have to scroll to get to the part that you actually want to read. Uh, so now finally Chromium 109 version 109 fixes that thing, moves uh, the scroll step to 120 pixels just like on any other operating system. And so all other Chromium-based browsers should benefit from that as well, including Chrome itself, if they didn't already had patches for this. I'm pretty sure that Edge and, uh, and Brave, for example, had patches for this because I don't remember them scrolling very badly the last time I did my browser benchmarks. Okay, now let's talk about some gaming. Uh, we first, we have the release of Proton Next 7.0-6. Uh, Proton Next is the very next release of Proton that is coming. It's not a stable release, but it's close enough. Uh, and it's making a bunch of new games playable, this one, like the Uncharted Legacy of Thieves collection, uh, Gotham Knights, or Heroes of the Dark. And it also brings the usual slew of bug fixes and performance improvements for existing games. Now, they also updated Proton Experimental, which is like the very unstable version of Proton, the even more alpha quality testing release that you can use. Uh, and this one fixes a bunch of stuff like alt-tabbing being broken on GNOME 43 and uh, letting Halo Infinite run, uh, even though there are still plenty of graphical glitches on NVIDIA. Apparently on AMD it's okay, but on NVIDIA, plenty of texture bugs and rendering glitches, but at least the game can run, which is pretty cool. Now, another thing is about emulation, uh, specifically Wii and GameCube emulation. Dolphin, the emulator, is getting a nice big performance boost uh, using Vulkan. Uh, they've been switching to the Vulkan memory allocator to better handle RAM and, and, well, not RAM, graphical memory on your GPU. And this should result in performance being massively better for certain titles, especially the Super Mario Galaxy titles. Uh, which should now be able to reach 140 FPS on the Steam Deck when before they were at about 80. And most games should also see better performance, but not necessarily of that magnitude, of course. Uh, but it's still nice to have better emulation running. Now, on that note, I tried running the Wii U emulator on my Steam Deck using EmuDeck and using the Wine version and using the native Linux app image, but I could not successfully run a single game. They all failed with the same exact error message which was very frustrating and prompted me to actually buy a Switch to play my old Wii U games that I just rebought. So yeah, stupid me. And the last news of this video is going to be about NVIDIA open source drivers. I kept the best for last if you're an, uh, an NVIDIA user. Uh, so a while back, I already talked about it in an old video. I think it was in October last year. 
somebody decided to start working on a new free and open source driver for NVIDIA using Vulkan. Uh, it was based on the sources that NVIDIA released. They had NVIDIA released an open source driver themselves, but it's not really compatible with the Linux kernel format and it's just not usable in its, in its state. But it still reveals enough about NVIDIA's architecture that the developer could think about implementing a competent driver without doing any reverse engineering compared to the Nouveau driver, which is the current free and open source one, which really doesn't work all that well because it's basically a big giant hack uh, based on reverse engineering. They, they did an excellent job for the data they had, but it was never going to be a good option. This new driver is called NVK, and it could already run a graphical desktop environment, but now we can even run some games uh, using Vulkan, which is cool. Now, apparently the performance is still completely horrible. They showed the Talos principle running at 5 FPS, which is definitely not something that you want to play. Uh, but still, it can render the game, and the game looks rendered pretty nicely. Now, the developer already knows how to fix uh, the performance issue, and they're already working on it, which means that we might have a first functional version of that driver in the not-so-distant future, probably during this year. It probably will not be uh, in feature parity with the proprietary NVIDIA drivers. It probably will not have the same performance but it might allow some people to do what they need to do without resorting to a proprietary driver, which is cool. Now, for me personally, the thing that I'm interested in is will it support OpenCL so I can still run DaVinci Resolve or is that going to be limited for some reason to the proprietary driver? There might be licensing issues or, or copyright issues. But basically, why I need NVIDIA is because no other graphics card can run a good enough OpenCL implementation that DaVinci Resolve supports. If the open source drivers support that, I am moving to the open source drivers in a heartbeat because, well, I don't really want proprietary stuff on my own desktops and laptops if I can avoid it. So yeah, pretty good news on that front. And that concludes this podcast. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. It was uh, a little bit longer than usual, well, than usual, than the, pre than the first episode that I released, the previous episode. Uh, I can't exactly say I have a huge track record with this podcast. It's only episode two. But still, thank you for listening to it. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to discuss any of these topics, you can hit me up on Mastodon at the Linux EXP or you can hit me up directly on the podcast website and leave a comment underneath uh, the episode on podcast.thelinuxexp.com. Uh, I think you will need a Fediverse-enabled account, so Mastodon, PixelFed, whatever. Uh, but you can leave a comment and uh, we can discuss that thing. And if you really enjoy the podcast and you want me to keep doing it, don't hesitate to check out my Patreon page in the show notes or to visit the PayPal link to donate whatever you can. Every little bit helps. Uh, this thing is not funded for now. It's extra work. It's basically a full day of work uh, on top of the channel. So if you like it, it's always appreciated to have a little bit of support, whether it's a comment, whether it's a share, uh, or just a little bit of funding. It's always nice. Uh, the podcast should also be available now on iTunes and Spotify completely, uh, which means that you can follow it anywhere you like. Uh, it's obviously on my own website. You can follow it using the Fediverse because it's hosted on Castopod. So you can subscribe to the podcast using Mastodon, for example, and get all the new episodes there. Or there's an RSS link uh, on the page of the podcast as well. So you can add it to any other client that you like. So thank you all for listening to the podcast. Thanks to everyone that supports the channel and makes this podcast possible. And I guess you will hear me in the next one next week. Bye.